are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Well, friends, would you grab your Bibles? <clears throat> we are in the Gospel of Mark, and you can open them up to Mark chapter 13. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 all the way through the end of chapter 13 to verse 37. We're taking the whole chapter on. This will be an adventure together. So if you have your Bibles open, let's give our attention to Mark chapter 13, verse 1. This is God's words. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. 
from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of your word now. So what we have before us is something complicated. Mark 13 is a complicated, long passage. And when you have something complicated in front of you, oftentimes it's good, it's helpful to start with something really simple. Let's get a simple thing out of the way. And so the simple thing we're going to look at is Mark chapter 1. Jesus comes into Galilee and he preaches this message. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. We've repeated this announcement many times so far in the gospel of Mark. And we've repeated this announcement for good reason. It's the very thesis statement of Mark's gospel. Whether we're considering the forgiveness of sins, the healing of the sick or the casting out of demons, or even Mark chapter 13, this long complicated chapter, this announcement holds sway over what's happening in Mark's gospel. It's the thesis statement. And so we need to ask for clarity. Well, what did Jesus mean when he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, Jesus doesn't flesh out an answer in Mark chapter one. He understands that we would know our Old Testaments, and so we find the rest of the sermon, Jesus' sermon in the Old Testament, so we need to poke around in the prophets, and we can turn to Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Isaiah 40. And so in Isaiah 40, Isaiah tells about a coming preacher and the message he's going to preach. And so in chapter 40, verse 9, Isaiah says this, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice up with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. So we've got this preacher, and he's going to say what? Behold your God. This is good news for Israel. We have to remember the context of Isaiah 40. These are a people who are in exile because of their sin. They've been removed from the land of promise. They've been removed from the temple. They've been removed from God's presence. What does Isaiah say? Behold your God. God is going to return. And so we ask, well, what does it mean? What does it mean for God to return to his people? So we keep reading. We go down to Isaiah 40, verse 10. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. What is Isaiah saying? Well, he's saying those who receive the message of the gospel, who believe it, are going to find the God of Israel to be a gentle shepherd. So Isaiah is using poetic terms. 
shepherd and sheep. And what he's saying is that the Lord is going to draw near to his people and lead them out in a great Exodus story. But we have to ask, is that all that this coming of God means? Is there something else? And when you read the scriptures, you realize that that salvation is always accompanied with judgment. They go hand in hand. You cannot have salvation without judgment. And so we find a judging word in the book of Malachi. Turn there with me. It's the last book in your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. So Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is talking about the return of the Lord He says in chapter 3, verse 1, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, we're on track. Then he goes on to say this, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. And then Malachi goes on to talk about what this judgment and purification means. And so here we need to connect all the dots. Jesus preaches, the time is filled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he is saying is this, God is drawing near, it's the time for salvation, it's the time of judgment. This all is climaxing in my ministry. And so we can bring this to bear on Mark chapter 13 and say this, Mark 13 is an explanation, an application of Jesus' initial proclamation that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. This chapter and everything in it is about God's arrival, it's about God's salvation, and it's about the judgment of God. That's what Mark 13 is about. So this is the last time we're going to say the word simply in the sermon because Mark 13 is a complicated chapter. It's the most complicated chapter in the Gospel of Mark and it's one of the hardest chapters in the entire Bible. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks to work through this text. This sermon right now is going to be primarily an argument. And the aim of this sermon is to get a handle on what Jesus is talking about. We want to understand what is Jesus speaking about And this is an important work. We have to do the hard work of digging into the text and following where Jesus goes. And then next weekend, we're going to look at the application. We're going to ask, well, how does this this chapter fit with the gospel? How does this chapter change the way I live my life? So we've got that. So before we jump into chapter 13 and look at the text, it might be helpful to offer an illustration about how to read this chapter. And so we can think of Mark chapter 13 as a mountain range. It's a beautiful mountain range. Mark 13 is beautiful. It's also a mysterious mountain range. There's a lot of shadows. There's a lot of things we can't see. But it's also a rugged and tough mountain range. And we as readers of the Bible, especially Mark 13, are called to be mountaineers. Our job is to to climb this mountain range and get to the very peak of the mountain and look out from the peak of the mountain and see the glory of the mountain range. We want to get to the highest summit and look out. And so we're mountaineers and we draw near to the foothills of this mountain range. And as we begin to think about how we're gonna travel up this mountain range, we see that there are three well-worn paths in the foothills. So there's three options we can take as we try to traverse and climb this mountain range. And the first option is called the future option. And so these mountaineers understand Mark 13 to be principally about the end of all things. 
And so these folks find in these words doctrines like the rapture, the end of the physical space-time universe, and the second coming of Jesus. But there's also a second path. And the second path is called the mixed or the, the middle view, the middle way. And these mountaineers look at the first path and they say, oh, yeah, I see quite a few things right. There's a lot of things that are yet unaccomplished. We see the second coming of Jesus here. But they also look at this text and say, well, it seems from our vantage point that a lot of these things, some of these things are already accomplished in history. And this paves the way for the third path. This is called the historical path. And these folks propose that everything you find in Mark 13 has already been historically accomplished in the ministry of Jesus. So thinking about Jesus' death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then thinking about 70 AD when Rome comes in and destroys Jerusalem and the temple. So as we consider these three paths, we're at the foot of the mountain where we're, we're thinking, well, what path should we take? And we have to realize that these paths aren't created equal. Some, one of these paths will get you up higher the mountain, while others of these paths will leave you stranded in a very precarious place where you cannot advance further anymore. And so the question is, well, what path should we take up this mountain range? And here we face a a conundrum because we don't have enough time, we don't have enough energy to try the first path, and if the first path doesn't work, we climb down the mountain range and we try the, the second path, and if that doesn't work, we climb back down and we try the third path. We don't have the time, we don't have the energy for that. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna lay out the third path for you. I'm gonna argue that this text has found its accomplishment in the ministry of Jesus, so thinking about his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and then in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So we're gonna travel this path together. I'm gonna to grab you by the hand and we're gonna start charging up this mountain range so we can start our climb. Grab your Bibles, open them up to verses one through two. So Mark says this. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus' words are unambiguous, unapologetic. This temple is going to be destroyed. And this disturbs Jesus' disciples, but as readers of Mark's gospel, we're already keyed into this because we've been following Jesus' story since Mark chapter 11. And, and since chapter 11, Jesus has been very pessimistic about the temple and the temple's leaders. We can go back to chapter 11 and we can remember the, the fig tree sandwich that we found there. Do you remember that? So in chapter 11, Jesus comes to this fig tree. This is a really weird scene. And he, he comes looking for fruit, but what does he find? Well, he draws near, he pulls back the leaves. While there's many leaves, there's no fruit on the tree. And so what does he do? Well, he, he curses the tree. And Jesus draws near to the temple. And he looks at the temple He's looking for the fruit of repentance and faith. And so he draws near, and there's all sorts of leaves. There's all sorts of action. There's activity. There's, there's sacrifices being made. There's offerings being made. There's hustle and bustle. But Jesus peels back the leaves, and he doesn't find any fruit. He doesn't find any repentance. He doesn't find any faith. His word has not been accepted here. So what does Jesus do to the temple? Well, he curses it. And this is where it gets interesting. The next day, Jesus and his disciples, they return to the fig tree, and what do they find? They find that fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, amazed, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And so as readers in Mark's gospel, we're in chapter 11, we're, we're left hanging at this point. We look at the fig tree, Jesus came, he cursed it. We come the next day, it's withered. And we come to the temple, Jesus curses it, because he finds no fruit. And we say, well, what's gonna happen to this temple? Well, Jesus makes the matter clear. He completes this whole scene in chapter 13, verse two. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus says, this fruitless temple will be destroyed. We have to understand the magnitude of Jesus' words as the disciples were listening. What Jesus announces is on the scale of coming to a Russian and telling the Russian that the Kremlin is gonna implode very soon. The Russian is gonna be alarmed. What Jesus does here is like coming to an American and saying, Washington, D.C. is going to be wiped off the map very soon. The American would be very concerned. And so the disciples are concerned. This is not what they expected from Jesus' ministry. And so they they question Jesus. Verse 4, they say, well, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. So essentially they ask, well, when and what sign? Those seem like reasonable questions. And as readers, we have to let verse four, actually verses one through four, guide our understanding of the text. What is Jesus talking about and what are the disciples concerned about? Well, they're concerned about the destruction of the temple. This context is really helpful as we continue to read on in the chapter. So here's the question before Jesus, when and what sign? But Jesus doesn't immediately answer their question. Jesus looks at his disciples and he sees that they need something. So Jesus begins doing a pastoral work. He gives his disciples two warnings to consider. We find the first warning in verse five. He says, see that no one leads you astray. So Jesus understands that after his death and resurrection, there's gonna be a lot going on in Israel. There's gonna be political intrigue, there's gonna be famines and earthquakes and trouble. There's even gonna be messianic pretenders who come along and say, I am he, I am the Davidic son, I will give you freedom. And there's gonna be adherents of messianic pretenders who are gonna go around proclaiming, saying, look, here is the Christ, look, here he is. But Jesus commands his men, He's saying, don't get worked up about wars or rumors of wars. Don't get worked up about famines or earthquakes. Don't get worked up about false messiahs. Even more, don't follow another messiah. Don't turn away from me. See that no one leads you astray. You need to get this straight. We find a second warning in verse nine. Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, be on your guard. So Jesus understands again that after his death and resurrection, something's gonna happen. Trouble is going to happen. His disciples are gonna be persecuted. They're gonna be rejected and hunted by their own countrymen, even their own family members. They're gonna be tried and sentenced before Gentile courts. They're gonna appear before kings. And Jesus sobers his men up. He wants them sober for this work. He says to them, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. In essence, Jesus is preaching to his men, be on your guard, get geared up for suffering, it's coming. And it's gonna come to you from every angle. There's gonna be no safe place to hide. Your family's gonna persecute you, your countrymen are gonna persecute you, the Gentiles are gonna persecute you, no safe place, so be on your guard. And when you close the Gospel of Mark and you keep reading in the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, we find the fulfillment of these words. We find that these men, these disciples, really needed these specific words from Jesus. Because when you read the book of Acts, what do you find? Well, you find famines in the book of Acts. 
You find profound suffering. You find Jesus' followers being killed for the faith. We even hear about false messiahs in the book of Acts. And we see that these men needed Jesus' words and they needed Jesus' words desperately. They needed to be told, don't turn away from me. And they needed to be told, be on your guard, get ready for suffering. Okay, so far, so good. So the disciples ask the question and Jesus starts doing some pastoral work. But we realize that Jesus hasn't answered their questions yet. When and what sign? So Jesus now gives his disciples two signs to consider. And we find the first sign in verse 10. Jesus says this. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So here in verse 10, Jesus envisions the great commission that we find in Matthew chapter 28, which spells it out in more detail. And and Jesus understands that his disciples are going to take the message of the good news of the gospel to the nations. And I'm arguing that this happened before 70 AD. And it seems here that we've run into a massive roadblock that we cannot overcome. You might be objecting in your mind, well, well, pastor, how can verse 10 be accomplished when we're still bringing the gospel to people who are unreached? How are you saying this? Perhaps, perhaps now's the time to jump from this third path and maybe the second path or the first path. But I think there's a good answer to all of this. We have to ask a question, and the question is this. How would the apostles have understood Jesus? Is it possible, according to the apostles, that the gospel was proclaimed to all nations before 70 AD? And here, the apostle Paul is super helpful. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter one. Paul writes, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. At the end of chapter one, Paul reiterates this. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Oh, we've got some thinking to do here. We've got to weigh Jesus' words with Paul's words. The apostle Paul likely penned these words from prison sometime around A.D. 50. And he could say with confidence in A.D. 50 that the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world and has been proclaimed in all creation. Now we have to understand that Paul and Jesus are likely operating from the same assumptions. They don't think scientifically like we do. If I say all nations, you think of every ethnicity, every people group in the world. But Paul couldn't have meant that if he said that in Colossians 1. He didn't have in his mind the, the tribe and the deacons darkest part of South America? That wouldn't make any sense in Colossians 1. Rather, they're talking about the known world, the world around them, the Roman Empire. And Paul looks out in his ministry and he says, this gospel has been proclaimed in all the earth under heaven. It's bearing fruit everywhere. I see it growing. So we can see a way that this can be fulfilled before AD 70. And so there we have the first sign. The gospel has to be proclaimed to all nations. But that first sign is indefinite. It doesn't have pinpoint accuracy for the disciples. When Jerusalem would exactly fall. And so we're led to ask, is there a more definite sign? Is is there a sign that will be indisputable and marked? And so Jesus provides us a sign in verse 14. He says, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. So this is cryptic language to us. This is really strange language to us. But this language would have been crystal clear to the disciples. 
The book of Daniel speaks about a coming tragedy that would take place in the temple, and this tragedy would actually be more like a horror, and this horror would defile the temple. That's what an abomination is. It's something disgusting. It abominates. And the result of this abomination is that it will cause the temple to be desolate. In essence, it's going to make the temple inoperable. So in the background of Jesus' mind and his disciples' mind would have been the actions of the Syrian king Antiochus. So in 168 BC, Antiochus marched into Jerusalem and he killed 40,000 Jews. He plundered the temple. And when he plundered the temple, he went into the temple and he built an altar to Zeus and there he sacrificed pigs to Zeus. And if you know the Old Testament, pigs are unclean. And then he took the blood of the pigs and he scattered that blood all over the holy places. And so Jesus is saying this, disciples, have you read the book of Daniel? Have you heard about this abomination that causes desolation? You know history, what happened in 168 BC when Antiochus came into Jerusalem and he offered pigs up on the altar. Think about this, something like that is going to happen again. And Jesus is preaching to his men, this bears immediate consequence for your life. When this sign occurs, it's time to take action. We have to think about this. This should make sense. If you were an Israelite and you saw your capital city being besieged, if you had patriotic blood, what would you be tempted to do? Well, you might be tempted to take your sword and shield and go to that city. You might be tempted to go there and fight for Israel's cause, but Jesus is saying, when you see this sign, it's time to act, it's time to go. So he commands his disciples in verse 15, and he gives these words to the church. Jesus says, flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. When you see this sign, you need to move. You need to flee Jerusalem even more. You need to flee the region of Judea. So we need to keep this all straight in our minds. The disciples come. Jesus prophesies the temple's destruction. Disciples ask, well, when and what sign? And Jesus gives them two warnings, and then he gives them two signs. But as we glance down at our Bibles, we see that we haven't covered most of Mark 13 yet. And so we have to ask, well, what does the rest of this chapter talk about? So after answering the disciples' questions, he gives them these two signs. Jesus gives these men more than they bargained for. He goes on to explain what all of this means. And Jesus here is getting at the logic underneath the destruction of the temple. He wants his disciples to see the the deep logic, the deep reasoning of God. So we have to look at verses 24 through 27. And these are the most important verses in the whole chapter. And this is where we're going to camp. So Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So again, we're asking, well, what is Jesus talking about here? And it seems... It seems that Jesus is talking about the end of the world, the sun being darkened, stars falling from the heaven, the Son of Man riding on the clouds, angels gathering in the elect. It seems that we've hit another roadblock. It seems that the universe is literally falling apart, that our physical space-time universe is coming to an end. 
But we have to ask, is it? Is that what Jesus is saying? Or is he saying something else? And we have to read on. Look three verses down. Jesus says this. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So according to Jesus, the sun being dark and the stars falling from the heaven, the son of man riding on the clouds, the gathering of the elect will happen in the lifetime of the disciples. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Jesus is changing our frame of reference. And so we ask, well, how can that be? We're still standing on the earth. The stars haven't fallen. The sun is shining today. I saw the moon. What is Jesus talking about here? Did Jesus get it wrong? Well, we have some work to do. And so if we know anything about Jesus, Jesus loves the Old Testament. And if we want to understand Jesus, we have understood this from Mark, we have to go mine the Old Testament. And what Jesus does in verses 24 through 27 is he strings together three Old Testament quotations that explain the significance, the deep logic of the temple's destruction. And so we need to, we need to follow Jesus here because he's pointing us. So we find the first quote in these words. Jesus says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So this comes from Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, among other places, but we'll just go to Isaiah 13, verse 10. And Isaiah says this there. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And so we're not confused where Jesus got this language from. He got it from reading the prophets. He got it from reading Isaiah and Joel. And so we ask, well, what was Isaiah talking about when he wrote these words? That's what good readers of the Bible do. And so we ask, well, was Isaiah prophesying the end of the world? Well, the answer is no. You read Isaiah 13 and you find that this is a prophecy about the destruction of a nation, the nation of Babylon. Isaiah clarifies what he means. If you read on in Isaiah 13, he says, And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. So what is Isaiah saying? When Isaiah talks about the sun being darkened and the moon not giving its light, he's talking about the nation of Babylon falling under the wrath of God. He's investing when another nation conquers Babylon with theological significance. He's saying this is not just a a nation taking over a nation. This is actually the wrath of God coming on these people. And when Jesus uses this language, he's making the same point. He's saying Jerusalem has become just like Babylon. And the judgment of God is coming on Israel just like it came on Babylon. He's investing when Rome sacks Jerusalem with theological significance. This is the wrath of God. Jesus is preaching. We find a second quote. Jesus says, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. So Jesus quotes here from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So Daniel chapter 7 is a vision scene. And in this vision scene, Daniel sees four beasts, four monsters that come out of the sea. And these beasts, these monsters, they rule over the world. They have dominion, they have sway. One monster gives way to another monster that gives way to another monster. 
And then the fourth monster come, and this, this beast is waging war against the people of God. But in the midst of this terrifying vision, the Lord promises victory to the people of God. The Lord says to Daniel in this vision that one day these beasts will all be destroyed and the people of God will have dominion over the earth. And so we ask, well, what what is the sign of this victory? What is the sign of this great reversal when the beasts will be cast down and the people of God will reign? Well, Daniel writes about what he sees. He says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people should serve him. Here's the great reversal, and we have to notice the language. Where does the son of man go? Well, he doesn't go to earth. Rather, he goes to the ancient of days. He does not travel downward in this vision. He's rather traveling to the throne. And his coming to the ancient of days means what? Well, it's the signal of his vindication. The beasts aren't gonna rule. The son of man is going to rule. And his travel upward is the the sign of his triumph. The son of man is glorified and he is going to rule on behalf of the saints of God. And so what is Jesus talking about when he quotes Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14? I don't think Jesus is talking about space travel. No, I think Jesus is preaching this. He's saying, when you see the collapse of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, know this, that's my coming. I have dominion and glory and a kingdom from my father. Know this, I'm exercising my rights as the sovereign ruler over all reality. Here's proof positive that I'm the glorified son of man. I am wielding my authority. I am judging and I am saving. We have a third quote. Jesus says, then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse four. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses is prophesying. He's looking to the future and he realizes that Israel is not gonna keep the law of God. And because they're not gonna keep the law of God, they're gonna come under God's wrath, they're gonna be exiled, they're gonna be removed, spewed out of the land. But as Moses looks to the future with God's guidance, he doesn't see wrath as the end of the story. He sees that the Lord is going to regather his people, that there's gonna be a day of grace. And then Moses preaches this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse four, he says, if your outcasts are in the outermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. So what is Jesus talking about here? He talks about the destruction of the temple, he talks about his enthronement at the right hand of the Father, that he is the Son of Man glorified, and he points this great fact out to us, This all means that the time of exile is finally over. A people will be gathered around Jesus to worship him. And we see this theme throughout Mark chapter 13. Evangelism of the nations will happen before the destruction of the temple. And evangelism of the nations is gonna happen after the destruction of the temple. And what we see here is the heart of Jesus. The Lord is in the business of gathering a people for himself. Jesus proclaims the end of exile is over when all this happens. And so we can trace this all out again. Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple. The disciples, rightly so, are interested. They ask, well, when, what sign? Jesus understands the needs of his men, so he gives them two warnings. Don't be led astray. 
Don't be led astray by earthquakes or famines. Especially don't be led astray by other messiahs. And then he says, be on your guard. You're going to suffer. You need to be ready for it. You're going to be hated by all men for my name's sake. And then Jesus gives him two signs. First, the gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations. And then he gives him a really specific sign, the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, you better get moving. Flee the country. And then Jesus explains the meaning of it all. It means this, Israel is under the wrath of God. It means this, Jesus is truly the exalted son of man. And it means that a people will be gathered around him to worship. That's what I think Mark 13 is all about. And so next week we're going to focus our time on how does this chapter relate to our understanding of the gospel and how are we supposed to live in light of Mark 13. But before we leave, I want to to give you one application. And the application isn't from the text, but it's about how we've been using the text, what we've been doing with the text. And the application is this. Reading the Bible is really hard work. It's really hard work. When you open up your Bible, some passages are really easy to understand, like the the application is just dripping off the page, and you're refreshed, you're satisfied, but other times you open up your Bible, and you've got to work hard to make sense of it. You've got to get out your shovel and your pickaxe. Sometimes you've got to get out some dynamite and blast away at the text. You've got to work hard at it. And that's what we've done this morning with Mark 13. This is a hard text. We've slogged through multiple Old Testament passages. We worked through Isaiah. We worked through Malachi. We went to the book of Daniel. We looked into the book of Deuteronomy. We've carefully weighed the meaning of words. We compared what Jesus says with Paul says, trying to understand how these people thought in the first century. We looked at ancient history. We talked about this guy named Antiochus who conquered Jerusalem in 168 BC, and our minds have been stretched to the limit. So at home, we like to play cards. Owen and I will play Go Fish, Stella too. And when we play Go Fish, when you have little hands, sometimes you have this problem. If, you have, if you're told to go fish too many times, what happens? The cards start to fall out of your little hands. When you have big hands, you can hold a lot of cards. When you have little hands, the cards start falling out everywhere. And as readers of Mark 13, we're, we're like little kids with little hands. We get this piece of data comes in. We make this reference here, and it's just like, I can't hold all of this together. But this is good for us, and we have to reckon this. This is good for us, this hard work, even being confused is good for us because it pleases our God. Our God loves a people who works hard at the word of God. Our God loves a people who pursues the word of God because they love it. They're gonna work away at it, they're gonna dig, they're not gonna give up on it even when it's hard and a bit frustrating. We're gonna pursue it. Even more, the Lord loves to bless this kind of work, people who work hard at the word. I'm reminded of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Paul commands Timothy. He gives him this imperative. He says, think over what I say. And Paul's looking at this younger man in the ministry, and he says, if you're going to be a minister of the gospel, if you're going to serve Christ's church, you better think hard. You better not be afraid of hard work. And I think that applies to every Christian. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you better be a hard thinker. You better run after the scriptures. But then Paul gives this glorious promise. Think over what I say, why? For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. What Paul's saying is that our God loves someone who digs into the text and pursues it. And our God's gonna bless that kind of work. And so we've done hard work together. We've pursued Mark 13, and now we need to pray that the Lord would give us understanding. So let's pray. 
Oh, Father, we do love your word. We love the words of Jesus. They are good for us. We also, we also say that they are hard to understand at times. But we pray, we pray, we pray for diligence that we would pursue your words, that we would be hard workers, that we would not slough off. We pray that you would bless our hard work, that you would give us understanding. We want to see the glory of Mark 13. We want to see the kingship of Jesus. We want to understand these words rightly. And so we pray, give us understanding. We need your help. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.